1: Good evening, Rifters! This is Rifts and Rules, the 5e D&D podcast where we go through the many 5e books and talk about various rules to enhance your gameplay experience. I'm Nathan, the Dungeon Master of Riftwake. And I'm Remy, a player on Riftwake and the Dungeon Master
2: myself. And today we're here to talk to you about level demographics! Yay! Nathan, what is level demographics in terms of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. It's
1: something to do with people with power being better than the weaker ones. Yeah. Uh,
2: I just... Anyway.
1: <laughs> God damn
2: you, Nathan. <laughs> so, level demographics is the distribution in world building in terms of how many powerful people exist in your world. And obviously this is very much an outside in kind of topic and one that I have actually gone off on Remy rants about in the past. So it is long past time that we devote an actual episode to the topic to kind of just let me get it out of my system and put out there in its own accessible form. So. Nathan, why would it matter to plan out and or at least think about the demographics of
1: your world? So it's actually quite uh, interesting that it's not a, a bigger thing. I've, like after I heard you talk about it and understood what it actually meant, um, it kind of was interesting that it wasn't really a thing prior. Uh, it's it's basically a case where why do we not have powerful people? Like, as many powerful people out there. Because, you see, the players get relatively... We can relatively quickly achieve level 20 and stuff. And not not even level 20, achieve, like, level, what, 7 in a relatively short period of time, right? And why are they the only ones? So where are all these other high-level people? And demographics basically places them and gives you, like, okay, how many of this are there?
2: And that's kind of the counter argument that comes up most often. So a lot of DMs ascribe to the philosophy that the player characters are, you know, the chosen one, the special, the destined ones, whatever the hell you want to call it. They're the ones who matter. (laughs) But. That is not something that necessarily has to be the case, and I myself fall onto the complete opposite end of that spectrum because, as we have talked about in the past, I am very much a proponent of high magic D and D worlds. So the idea being, there is this crazy amount of powerful magical shit that exists in Dungeons and Dragons, you know, and obviously Fifth Edition specifically still has a huge amount of stuff out there. However. For the most part, it's just PCs that are potentially able to access any of this, because most DMs like actually a pretty significant majority, I would even say, don't do the highest levels of world building for their worlds. And it is actually a pretty common debate also in fifth edition specifically about how high level a game to play. Uh, We've talked about that before in our high level play and epic monsters episodes in the past. But the thing is, how do you want your world to be is influenced by how strong are the strongest people in your world? So, you know, obviously at the tippy, tippy top, you can have like active gods in your world where you just don't even bother with levels or character sheet. Just they want shit and it happens. And fine, we'll probably go over that, you know, in its own future episode. But to think about the powerful people, like ninth level spells exist in various books for this game. But how many people can cast them? That is something that is remarkably not understood or even thought about for a lot of dungeon masters. So thinking about from the top down perspective, how many powerful people are out there? And to zoom out even farther from that question, how many people have levels in your world? That would be the first question to ask. And well, actually, the second question, because the first question is how big is your world and this is not something where you need to like create an entire you know magical census for your world like even if it is just something for you as the dm that's going too far i did it of course but i'm a crazy person
1: this is no yeah, he's a crazy person everyone <laughs> like he said that have- himself
2: <laughs> yes so You know, I myself do have Excel sheets where I figured out, okay, this is my world population. This is the racial breakdown. This is the level breakdown. This is the class breakdown. Because having all of that information, I feel to be a useful thing. Do normal DMs need that level of detail? Absolutely not.
1: No, no. Do
2: I enjoy having it? Yes.
1: So, let me give you a perspective on how the normal DM does this thing. Um, of course, I'm going to put myself as a normal DM in this case because compared to Remy, I think I'm normal, right? So, you're not right. So, anyways, um, what I do when I think, okay, how many this thing there are, I, I, I don't care. What happens is it's just like, I need this character. Oh, it's there.
2: Uh huh. And, <laughs> and that's that how it is works. the normal way to do things. You need a particular character to exist, you make the character exist. Great. You might do this just before the session that you're about to play. You might just make them up during a session that happens a lot. And honestly, that's pretty normal. But again, for thinking about the big picture, I prefer thinking the outside in style. So again, that first question, just how many people are in your world? So. Again, don't bother with a census for the most part, unless you are just a numbers nerd like myself. But if you just imagine, okay, so let's say this is a world of, you know, 50 million people. And, you know, by people, of course, you're including everyone. That's not humans, that's just all sentient races together. They're not people. ah, Fuck you. But you can decide, okay, how far down the rabbit hole to go. It is not a you know one or a hundred type a situation. There are absolutely levels to this. uh, Actually, I probably shouldn't use the word levels, but there are stages that you can decide as a DM of how far down this rabbit hole to go. Because at the most basic level, to just have an idea, okay, let's say there are something like fifty million people in the world, and let's just say maybe. you know, one in a thousand people is an adventurer like that alone is quite something. Because if you have 50 million and one in a thousand is an adventurer, that would mean that there's 50,000 adventurers out there, which is actually quite a lot of individuals who may be quite powerful. And you can also divide that up. Now, again, I have an Excel sheet that does specify one through 20 each class, what the breakdown is by percentage and ratios and all kinds of fun math. You don't need to go that far. I think it's neat, but OK. Anyway, what I do suggest is to break it down a little bit more than just how many adventures. So in the fifth edition Dungeon Masters guide, it mentions that there are four tiers of adventurers where it's just escalating in power and renown and all of that fun stuff. So you've got your tier one adventurers, is just first level through fourth level. So your basic, well, not basic, but even a first level adventurer is still gonna be, you know, head and shoulders above a commoner. But for adventurers, you know, they're first. Then you've got your tier two, which is levels five through ten, tier three, which is eleven through sixteen. And your tier fours, which is the 17 through 20. Now, that's only four categories. And at least, you know, from my perspective, that's actually a reasonable reasonable amount, I feel, to break things down. Because if you have an idea, okay, how many new adventures are there in the world? How many, you know, in the middle categories and especially how many high level ones? So to toss it back to you for a moment, Nathan, why would it matter to know how many Tier 4 adventurers are out there?
1: First of um, having more Tier 4 adventurers out there um, kind of affects the state of your world. But more importantly, it affects how um, consequences work against your players at certain moments. So, for example, if your players are pretty powerful themselves, it might not be possible for you know, t- the typical guard or something of that sort to actually deal with them. So you might have this crack team um of, you know, operators uh, like like the level 20 wizards. It's, they just go out killing these um adventurers that go rogue, you know.
2: Yeah. So uh just to reiterate, a tier four adventure starts at level 17. And that is especially significant. Level 17... 17- is the point at which spellcasters can potentially gain access to ninth level spells. So that's your true polymorph, your wish, the real big shit. So to have some idea of how many people are out there able to cast such spells is important. Uh, true resurrection, also ninth level. So how many people can cast true resurrection and wish? That's a good thing to kind of have in the back of your head, because that's the kind of thing That can really change the way that a world works. And to be honest, it is fully within your rights as a DM to decide, I don't want the highest levels of magic to exist in my world. Again, a large majority of Dungeon Masters never actually play in epic levels, which is a shame because that literally is the world shaping tier of power. And yet it is by far the least that actually gets played. So to think about, okay, let's just, you know, pull a number out of my ass here for a moment. Let's just say that there's a hundred people in the world who can cast Wish. That's actually pretty significant, because even if you think, okay, there's a hundred people, you know, even if you do go back to that kind of 50 million kind of population level, so that would mean then that it's what, uh, one in, uh, 500,000 to actually have an individual who can cast wish. So that's real rare if you think about it in terms of like statistics. But if you think about it in terms of pure numbers, holy shit, 100 people that can cast wish every fucking day. That's terrifying in one way. And again, going back to the whole, uh
1: uh-huh. That that's an entire idea of itself. Wouldn't it be crazy if there was like just just a bunch of wizards just hanging about and their one job right? Is the castle wish to, to nullify all other wishes?: <laughs> I
2: mean, honestly, an argument could be made that that's a real good use of such individuals, just because like, if you had like a cabal of wizards whose sole task is like every day, like you have a hundred wizards cast. I wish that the next wish made by someone not in our cabal was canceled. That's a real interesting use of the spell, in all honesty, because that would be a way to kind of stabilize the potential chaoticness of wish. And then that would mean then that if, let's say, you know, let's just say it's more than half of those 100. So even if you just had 60 of them that used their wishes specifically to block outsiders, from casting wish, then that's honestly that is a way to limit wish use in your world, that this would then become the only organization that can have non countered wishes. Like thinking about high level play, whoever has control of wishes is a force in the world. Even an individual that has wish is a force in the world. So thinking about who has that power is important for world building. And I disagree with the common idea that you just pull out high level NPCs when you need them. Like, okay, let's just say that you do make up, you know, Wizard Academy, powerful, you know, person in charge of the school. You know, you have an archmage who runs it. And then, okay, fine, you have this archmage who is, you know, a wish castable wizard. Like, what do such individuals do with their time? What do they do with their magic? Those are movers and shakers in the world. Like, that's the whole point of splitting adventurers into tiers is because it shows how much area people that powerful can influence. So if you do think, okay, if they like, even if you have a higher magic world, let's say, if you have 5000 people in the world that can cast wish, like even if you have a group of 500 of them that try to wrangle the rest, that's still 4500 that aren't part of that group. That's damn near impossible to actually like counter and manage or any such, you know, method of control. So it should be more important for world building to think about the demographics of the world, especially at the higher levels. However, while I do feel that to be incredibly important, it is not the only important part. I did mention earlier on to also think about just how many people total are adventurers. And that is actually another shockingly debated topic in Dungeons and Dragons.
1: So Remy, how how many adventurers are there in your world? Lots.
2: So to figure out how many adventures there are, again, there's different levels of math that you can decide on. And of course, me being me, I'm sure that you can guess what route I chose to take, the most complicated one. So instead of just separating out, you know, the adventurers as well as the four tiers, and although I do also have them split to the four tiers, I also thought about more just categories of people to figure out my demographics. And there honestly are farther layers that I probably can go to, but even I am capable of figuring out what is excessive. So...
1: uh, I I don't believe that, but okay.
2: (laughs) Oh, believe me, there is more that I could do. But again, there's only so much time and so many cells on an Excel sheet. I am not a master of Excel, I am intermediate at best. But anyway, so just for my own world, the way that I've divided things up is into so I've got the whole the world population first, then I also have children, unskilled, mage rights, sidekicks, and then the four tiers tier one, two, three, and four. So those eight categories of individuals make up the total world population. So something that a lot of people well some people think about some don't is the idea of okay a level 1 adventurer is far better trained than the average commoner the average guard like just a first level fighter is trained in all armor and weapons and shields in addition to having powers and in in, in addition to that the ability to spend hit dice to recover from injury if you think about a D&D world, even at the very, very beginning, individuals total, not even just adventures, but just people in a D&D world are just more durable and just exceptional in general compared to humans of Earth. Because of the fact that there aren't mandatory injury mechanics and the idea that everything is represented by hit points, an argument could be made that such injuries rarely happen because the sheer magic of the world prevents injury. Like that actually is the way that I have interpreted magic for my own world. This is absolutely not a necessary thing, but it just kind of works for the way that I see magic personally. But anyway, that's a separate episode.
1: How do you see magic like a religion, jeez?
2: (sighs) I mean, there is the arcane cleric where that literally is the thing. Anyway, tangents, stop it. <laughs> but between those eight categories, thinking of the breakdown is what I feel to be like the most important like for that tier of diving into two things. So, how many kids are in your world? And then unskilled is a word that I chose to use because in the hirelings section of the Dungeon Master's guide, it does talk about, you know, hiring people who are skilled or unskilled at different rates of pay. And hirelings is another one that we will absolutely go into more in depth in the future. But now is a good time to just mention it for demographic's sake. So, you know, unskilled labor is someone who gets paid two silver a day. So it is heavily implied that most people in the world are that. And of course, me being me, I did research into what is the actual breakdown in our world of you know, unskilled labor versus skilled labor versus semi skilled labor. And of course, I used those numbers for my own world because me. But anyway, mage right is another kind of important and honestly really interesting thing that I'm curious. Nathan, have you heard that word before? Mage right?
1: Is it like you're right as a mage? Uh, W-R-I-G, uh,
2: yeah, w R I G. Mage? No, and then I, it's still I the haven't. same word, W R I G H T. So that is something that is from Eberron, but it fits so well to just my idea of D&D that I used it as its own category of person because a mage right is a person who knows a little bit of magic, but is not a full spellcaster. So this is the person who has like a couple of cantrips, maybe a spell that they can cast You know, sometimes with like only if they have material components. So it's someone who just knows a little bit of magic. And that's fucking important to me as someone who runs a high magic world, because there are so many types of magic that exist that the idea of someone being able to pick up a small amount of magic just makes sense to me. And also from the mechanical side of things, there exists the magic initiate feat, which is You learn a couple of cantrips and a level one spell. So that just being a feat and feats being something that if you allow training could just be a thing that someone picks up in time like you might have. Like, let's just say you have like a big wizard academy in your world and then there's just a restaurant that all of them that a lot of the students like. It would be reasonable that, okay, maybe, you know, if that chef has been there five, ten years, like maybe he's just picked up prestidigitation just from his interactions with all of them over years and years. Like that's just something that would make sense. Just through sheer repetition, even if he's not smart enough to be a full wizard, you can just pick up the basics eventually. And the idea of that just can get expanded out. And so I did to think about, okay, so there would be like, maybe there are, you know, elite maids who are able to clean using prestidigitation chefs who learn prestidigitation to help with their, you know, who, you know, use it for cleaning or to make their food more flavorful, as I also talked about in the prestidigitation episode and on and on and on. The basics of magic are fucking useful. So even if it is limited to just cantrips and first level spells, it would make sense that even non combatants would pick up some small amount of magic eventually over time, like maybe construction workers might want to pick up Mage Hand for something that's a difficult to reach spot. Just basic cantrips are fucking useful. So trying to imagine and incorporate that into your world is worth consideration. Oh, boy, that was a fun, right? Anyway, so moving on just from the categories themselves. Now let's go into the next level of breakdown. So. What I myself chose to do is to also create percentages, percentages of the classes in my world and every single level from one to 20 and percentages of all of those eight categories that I just mentioned previously and using those all together. I have one glorious chart where I can just plug in a population and it will immediately fill in this chart because yay, Excel, and it will just give me the statistical breakdown of everything. So if I just input that 50 million population, it immediately tells me, ah, okay. so there will be 15 million mage rights since I have that as 30 percent of the world would have picked up some small amount of magic. And then that also tells me that in my world, there would be four and a half million adventurers between levels one and four. 450,000 for levels five to 10, 49,000 of levels 11 through 16, and 1,000 individuals of 17 through 20. And that is further broken down by each class and level. So your worlds may vary, of course, but that's the whole beauty of using Excel for this is that I was able to break down, okay, so I'm not going to use the standard percentages of like, what players pick because there actually are statistics out there of okay if you like this is the amount of characters that have been made on D beyond so that math is out there to see okay you know this is the most popular classes yada 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 so instead of using that i was able to just create my own to think okay i have a world where there was a recent alliance with a powerful demon lord and because of that, demons are not as frowned upon in my world. And as a result of that, warlocks have had a significant population boost in the last two centuries. So there's a lot more warlocks in my world than is
1: typical. You
2: know, Filthy on the other demons.
1: Hand, hmm? Filthy demons.
2: Yes, yes, Nathan. We all know your opinion on demons, including tieflings, you bastard. But again, That's the kind of thing that's worth thinking about, because it all does relate together to think, okay, so if there are going to be that amount of warlocks, then how many of those would be celestial warlocks? And then how many of them would be of higher level? Because celestial warlocks recharge their spell slots on a short rest, the benefit of being a warlock. So if you have high level celestial warlocks, those are powerful healers who can recharge on a short rest. That's amazing. So could you imagine like the draw in a town to try to convince such an individual to stay in a world where warlocks are far less stigmatized for the most part to imagine a healer that could help individuals of your town far more often than a typical spellcaster? That is a massive, massive boon. So that can lead us on to another topic, which is retirement. How many active adventurers are out there and how many retired adventurers are out there? This again, if you want to do a lot of math, you can, or you can just choose not to, or you could just have an idea in your head. How many adventurers get to retire and how many adventurers die? Because, you know, as you yourself, Nathan Proof, not all dungeon masters are fond of having a resurrection in their worlds. So if you consider the escalating danger of being an adventurer in a world with no resurrection, especially, how many of them just adventure, adventure, adventure until they die? And how many of them actually get to make the choice to stop? And how powerful are such individuals? So there is a lot of debate also among the D&D community about how how powerful, level-wise, should politically powerful individuals be? So, case in point, Nathan, what level would you say, like, the most the
1: most politically powerful kingdom's king should be? I mean, it kind of depends, doesn't it? Like, of course, the king would have a little bit of training from, like, when they were younger as a prince. And, like, a bit of sword stuff, but I wouldn't say there would be anything more than, like, the first three or five levels, right? Unless it was their goal as, like, the the kind of king that just goes out with the army and leads it in the front lines.
2: Maybe. Or maybe the most powerful kingdom's king is that way because, like, they are the one who conquered that territory. And so they are just, like, a level 20 fighter who that just is their retirement because they just... Well, they're level 20. Good luck getting them to, you know, saying no to them. So... How you choose to distribute the leveled individuals in your world is also a very important topic for thought, because just because there are powerful individuals, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll all be doing stuff. Like one of the classic views of wizards is the wizard hermit. like they just have a tower in the woods that where they're just doing arcane research to understand the secrets of the universe. So even if you do have a high magic world that has, you know, 5,000, you know, high level wizards all just kind of scattered about. I mean, there's honestly real good odds that some huge percentage of them aren't interfering or doing things actively. Like how many of them just are magically powerful and well studied, you know, immortal potentially, but just don't care about what's going on. And these are the things that you ought to think about when doing your world building, because there are so many things that can be influenced by the distribution of power. Do you have hundreds of wizards that actively like stomp out, you know, all of the worst things? Like if you had just 100 level 20 people of various classes as active adventurers, that is a very different campaign feel. Like, could you imagine, Nathan, if you just had 100 individuals? So let's just, you know, even divide it further. So let's say there's 25 parties of four level 20 adventurers, 25 parties of level 20s around the world. How much would that affect the world?
1: Lots, because <laughs> we, we we can see what a level five party can do, right? In White. imagine a, a whole bunch imagine not just level 20 for one party but a whole bunch and yeah that that that's a lot of different events and stuff that just happen because of these people roaming about
2: yeah and like if you even do think about you know a war situation where you have a massive amount of people you know gathered against each other if you had just like even if you narrow it farther let's just say 10 individuals who could cast you know just a meteor swarm just down on the opposing army. That is a spell that can just get fired for a fucking mile away and just disintegrate into ash. Like most, you know, guards or fighters of lower levels that that might come up against. I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it's a total of something like 40 D6 damage. So just um, the sheer escalation involved in those higher level individuals shapes the world and honestly that's a big part of the reason why a lot of dms don't allow the world to even venture into high level play and that honestly is an option so i've made my opinions known on high level play obviously i'm a fan but there is good reason to consider capping you know the levels in the world so to have a level cap in your world of You know, 16, maybe to prevent ninth level spells or even level 10, because a lot of D&D games never actually do get beyond 10th level or to just decide, okay, like maybe it just gets much, much harder to level up past a certain point. And that will lead me to what will probably be my final mini rant for this. If you have a higher number of adventurers out there, how? How do people gain levels in your world? Do you use player character, character sheets for everyone? Do you use sidekick classes for NPCs to make it easier on yourself to manage? Uh, Fun fact about that, actually, uh, sidekicks are getting an expansion soon in the new Tasha book coming out in uh, two weeks, actually, that will give them stats for levels one through twenty. So completely statted out. But do you have adventures in the world that are leveled player classes? Are they sidekicks? Do you just use the NPCs that exist in the books, so like the escalation of wait Remy Remy know, guard to knight to champion? Yes. What?
1: How many level twenties did you have again? Uh, a thousand. Do you have a thousand character sheets? <laughs>
2: Uh, Let's see. My D&D Beyond account currently has 420.
1: So no. So no. No, I would be surprised if he didn't.
2: So I'm sorry. Wouldn't be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, eventually, probably, because also, just like I talked about way, way, way back, I think in the gold episode, back in the single digits, uh, we there is value in thinking about where the highest people are. So if you have all of these high level people. Where are they? Do you have them in their own like wizard towers scattered about? Is there, you know, some like floating island of like all of the, you know, max level wizards that are just, you know, together, just like I don't care about the rest of the world. This is our place. We have a magic bubble to keep you out. Fuck you. Like maybe that is just a landmark in your world, or maybe they just maybe it's even a mystery. Maybe it's like, you know, that there were these powerful individuals historically, but, you know, either one day they all just vanished or it could just be a situation of every time someone gains the ability to cast wish, they just are gone like that could be a whole thing to investigate that like a lower level party is kind of hired to investigate that this, you know, powerful archmage is disappeared. And this is just a mystery of the world. Like what happens? And like that could be campaigns based around something like that. So like what happens to the high level people? They just vanish. But why is it like they get taken out by some like cabal of immortals who just have, you know, infinite clones to keep themselves alive and don't want the competition? Is it where eventually when you get that strong, you just leave and you just leave the material plane and go on to planar shenanigans elsewhere because there's just nothing to challenge you here anymore. Like There are as I do so often love to say, an infinite number of ways that you could go about using such a plot hook. And that is absolutely something that you can use to just hand wave it away as not your problem. They're just, yeah, there were powerful individuals, but they go away. And then to just think, okay, so the people that are left just have to deal with, you know, the issues that exist on your material plane. Also, another useful thing that I mentioned, if you do take the effort to make An Excel chart like I talked about earlier, besides thinking of it in terms of a world population, you could also use it for your cities, because if you do just change the numbers down to say 50,000 instead of 50 million, then that can give you the breakdown of how strong People are statistically likely to be so that can give you an idea of how many clerics are in your world or in your city able to cast rays dead. How many wizards there might potentially be to you know, defend the city? How many guards might have a couple of levels in fighter? So thinking about all of those things together is a good thing. In summary, there are m- many, many different ways that you can choose to think about the demographics in your world. But even if you don't go quite as far down the rabbit hole as I myself have and enjoy, just a little bit of thought about the high level people in your world, as well as the efforts needed for just the population to have so many adventurers is worth thought to Add depth to your world of how magic and everything influences everything else.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us 5 stars on iTunes. Also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast stars low as a dollar and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind the scenes content, early access to episodes, access to the Patreon Discord where we will chat with the cast and even a shout out on the show. Find us on social media on Twitter at Riff podcast on Facebook as riffwake or Reddit on the subreddit r slash podcast and you can send us an email, and rules at gmail.com
2: that's riffs and the rules at gmail.com thanks for listening shit i forgot something uh, another useful thing is that you can also use majorites to exemplify the people who are in training but not yet level one because that is also an important thing to think about the people who are not yet level one but are still worth counting in the world should be thought about
1: Okay.